listeners, another Transfiguration bonus episode and a not-so-subtle reminder that I'm running a Kickstarter for my new book, Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration. Please click the link in your show notes on your podcast app or Google Kickstarter Transfiguration Sarah Henlicky Wilson to back the campaign or if nothing else, to see the phenomenally awesome cover of this book. And please listen on for this, the first of actually three episodes I did on the Transfiguration with John Drury of Fresh Text. If you enjoyed this one and want to hear the other two, please subscribe to Fresh Text. The second one is already out, but you'll definitely want to subscribe so you are sure to get the third because in the third episode of the series on Fresh Text, we have a conversation about the Gospel of John that blew my mind and might just blow yours. Okay, so once again, don't forget, visit Kickstarter to back my Transfiguration book. And now on with this bonus episode. Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a few scholars uh, dig into a scripture passage, often drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it'll be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm professor of New Testament and spiritual formation at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And my guest this week is none other than Sarah Hinlicky Wilson. Uh, Sarah is no stranger to the show if you're a regular listener. And she is here today to discuss the transfiguration story. We're going to start using Mark 9, uh, but we'll be drawing on all the transfiguration accounts. And we're actually starting right now a three-week series when we sort of realized that we had a common interest in this text while she was working on a project. So she's working on a book. Uh, called Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration. And there's a Kickstarter starting for those listening to this the day it drops. It starts tomorrow and it'll be going for a couple weeks. Um, so we'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, but even if you just typed in Sarah Henlicky Wilson Kickstarter, you'll find it. And that'd be a way to support uh, this project that she's putting together. So we're pretty excited about promoting that that's coming forward and also just talking about a text we both love. So if you're enjoying the show today, make sure to press the share button on your podcast player app so others can find out as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Sarah. All right, so let's uh, jump in. Do you want to Read the passage. Did you say we wanted to start with Mark's version of the Transfiguration? I think we should start with Mark because okay. he, he is the Ur source for this account picked up by Matthew and Luke as well as Second Peter, a little dark horse Transfiguration yeah. witness there. All right. So I'm going to begin right at the beginning of chapter nine. Verse one is often omitted from the transfiguration, which is totally and completely wrong. So we're going to start right there and go through verse 10. So here, this is this is my translation. And he said to them, Amen, I say to you all that certain ones of those standing here will no way know how taste death until they should have seen the kingdom of God having come in power. 
And after six days, Jesus takes with himself Peter and James and John, and he bears them up to a high mountain by themselves alone. And he was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became exceedingly gleaming white in such a way a bleacher upon the earth could not whiten them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking together with Jesus. And Peter, beginning to speak, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what he was beginning to say, for they were scared out of their wits. And a cloud came to be overshadowing them, and a voice came to be from the cloud, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And all at once, looking around, they no longer saw anybody but Jesus alone with them. And then, descending from the mountain, he charged them that they describe what they saw to not one single person until when the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they kept the word to themselves, disputing what it is to rise from the dead. <laughs> yeah, the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. Oh, that's good. That's good. So do you mind, uh, I mean, oh, Chris, I want to ask you a bunch of questions, but I want to <laughs> stay focused on the theme. So what was the kind of big question that you wanted to kind of center around for this first episode right. in our little three-episode series? Yeah. So like I said, for me, the, the origin, or I told you the origin for this is that now that I'm a regular preacher again and following the church year, I have to preach on the transfiguration once a year. Um, actually, I discovered, I didn't even know this, Lutherans were the ones who introduced the transfiguration as the last Sunday of Epiphany season before huh. Lent. And it got picked up by the Revised Common Lectionary. The Roman Lectionary has it in the second Sunday of Lent, but that was kind of comes out of the same uh, Instinct, lectionary yeah. pattern um, of, of Lutherans, though there's also a transfiguration festival in August that yeah, Orthodox Sunday, Catholics but, and Ang yeah. Anglicans keep. It's, it's outside of the, the church year pattern. That's a whole separate fascinating story, but not for today. So anyway, once I started preaching every year again, I was like, by the fourth time transfiguration came up, I thought, I have nothing left to say. What else is there to say about this? And then I thought, there's got to be more to say about this. And, and, and uh, the entire book of Seven Ways of Looking at the Transfiguration came out of it. So you're good so, for seven more years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I think there's probably... Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, of course. Each, each lens could provide more than one sermon. So, um, so one of the things I have at least always heard in sermons and probably committed myself more than once is the focusing on the question of Moses and Elijah. What are they doing mm -hmm. there? And the way I've always heard it said is Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. So they're there symbolically. And almost inevitably, we Gentile Christians also interpret it supersessionistically. Yeah. Like they're there bye to bye. Like yeah. hand off the baton, yeah. say, Jesus, you're better than us. And so when I started digging in and looking at this, the first thing that's weird is that Mark, the original, where I'm going to assume here, he doesn't say Moses and Elijah. He says Elijah and Moses. Huh. Elijah comes first. And this is obviously weird enough that both Matthew and Luke are like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they, they switch it, it back to Moses and Elijah, just, I think, chronologically more than anything else. It's not but even and. It's Elijah with Moses. Yeah. 
So almost, so it's like, is it a, is Moses subordinates or is he the culmination? Interesting. But the ordering is, is provocative because it's yes. not chronological. And I personally believe Mark never does anything by accident. There, there might be a few yeah. random bits here and there in scripture, but Mark is so short and so Spartan, like everything's the way it is for a reason. Wow. I don't know if I've ever noticed that. I mean, it's so obvious once you say it, but there's so much because in the my mind, my mind, yeah. yeah, yeah, my mind just kind of inverts them, just like Matthew and Luke did. Matthew and Luke, if they're editing Mark, that's one of those examples where they may have just edited them, like almost not even thinkingly, right? You just right, do right, it, right, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Wow, wow. So the question is, why those two, and why in that order? Well, clearly Elijah is the focal point, as is clear when they go down the mountain. Afterwards, they start arguing about, well, what do the scribes say about Elijah and that stuff? And that's connected to John the Baptist and all this stuff. And he's one of the things, right? Elijah, the prophet, right? Um, when, when he asks, who do people say that I am, right? Right. So actually, exactly. Got it. Yeah. So actually, the framing of this story is not only the passion predictions, because right before it is, you know, Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Peter gets it right. Good job, Peter. Mm-hmm. And then he immediately, Jesus teaches them that he's going to die. And Peter flips out, tries to tell Jesus better. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then that is... That is the framing of the transfiguration. So both the passion prediction, but specifically, who do people say that I am? Elijah. That is one of the theories. And then on the other side of the transfiguration, the story concludes with Jesus. Don't say anything until after I have risen from the dead. And they say to themselves, what does it mean to rise from the dead? And apparently being so wigged out by this entire line of of thought, they say, uh, so could you maybe tell us why Elijah is supposed to come first? So they change the subject back to Elijah. So both Elijah and the cross yeah. are the framing devices of the transfiguration itself. Yeah, no, that's good. And I, I'm thinking about, so back in Mark chapter 8, verse 28. The answers they give, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets, that language, one of the prophets, where I'm thinking of the passage in John 1, where this kind of a version of this triad is kind of found in John's own mouth mm-hmm. as the Pharisees send messengers and they get a question and he says, are you the Messiah? He says, no. Um, and then they say, are you Elijah? And he says, no. And he says, are you the prophet, singular, which is most likely a reference to Deuteronomy 8, the, a prophet like Moses that will rise, which, which is had sort of messianic overtimes. Yes, go ahead. I was just going to say yeah. that is further evidence that we shouldn't think that Elijah is the stand-in for the prophets, because mm-hmm. both in that passage you quoted and in Mark 8, Elijah and the prophets, one of the prophets, are distinguished from each other. Yeah. They're not elided. They're yeah. separate things. Yeah, it seems to me that what makes Elijah and Moses stand out, as I'm, you're right, because I've done that law and the prophets move. And of course, that is a f- language that Jesus uses, all the law and the prophets sure, prophesied sure. until John even, he d- yeah. connects it to John. So that that can't, I, 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 I'm, I'm with you on the kind of supersessionistic endpoint that that has because they disappear and all that's left is Jesus, right? That, right. It's that Marcionite kind of narrative that we're setting up that's deeply erroneous and dangerous. So I'm with you on that. But the I'm thinking about what makes Moses and Elijah stand out in 
kind of second temple Judaism, there was a lot of obsession around Enoch and Elijah as two figures in the, in the narratives that don't go through a normal death, like their time with us, it comes to a close. Right. And then Moses doesn't exactly have that. Although there was a lot of a speculation that Moses did undergo some kind of assumption. There's even right, a right. book called the assumption of Moses that's alluded to in Jude in the book of Jude. So Moses was often in that same category because, of course, no one knows where he's buried. That's mentioned in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the prophet, like Moses from Matthew 8, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 18, generates some kind of sense of like Moses coming back, Elijah coming back, Enoch coming back. So, I mean, I don't know if any of that's helpful. I just kind of threw that out there to say these are figures not just as symbolic of law prophets. They would, because in a way, Elijah and Moses you could almost have Isaiah or someone like that, you know, like why, why, why Elijah? It's, it has something to do with their, their death, their exodus, their ascensions, right? Yeah. So John, you have such great canonical instincts. So that one of the reasons this project is so fruitful is because you just tug one little string and like all, yeah, all other parts of scripture come with it. So to, to pick up on everything you've said. So one is definitely there. there is a subplot of the identity of John the Baptist vis-a-vis -vis Elijah already in Mark. Right. And Luke Acts develops it much further. My my inference is that by the time Luke is writing his two-volume work, there are some serious controversies about Jesus' baptism versus John's baptism. So he yeah. has to much more carefully map out and, in that case, really subordinate John and and also outmode, supersede. This is the right kind of supersession, supersede yeah, John's yeah. baptism in favor of Christian baptism in Jesus' name. So I think that there's definitely that. Um, yeah, Mark's not fighting those battles. Yeah. Yeah, but he. Yeah. But there, there's enough of it in the water yes. there that he has to like Jesus has to deal with the whole Elijah expectation, and it seems like maybe there's a question. Well, is Jesus Elijah? And Jesus is the <laughs> one who says very firmly, "No, John is Elijah." And just saying something about himself. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Indirectly. Exactly. Which is very, exactly. yeah, very much Jesus, but especially the Mark and account of Jesus where Jesus only wants to speak of himself indirectly. Right. 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 Yeah. So that's a big thing. Also, totally right about, about the death. So, you know, Elijah departs directly into heaven and Moses maybe is killed at God's hand. Like the Hebrew is very amb ambiguous at the yeah. end where like the, the mouth of the Lord came upon Moses and suddenly he's dead. And then Moses is directly buried. There's no shrine. There's no grave. He's outside the land. So in a certain sense, you, you could think in terms of Moses and Elijah actually are, are candidates to return because this is clearly mm -hmm. not like reincarnation. It's not, it's not the kind of resuscitation resurrection Jesus does with the son of the widow of Nain or with Lazarus. It's a, it's a different kind of, of mode of living. Jesus, of course, talks about God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living, not the dead. But it's not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob who come up. So I'm guessing that there's some some definite calling upon those um, mysterious departures from life. And I think if you kind of uh, even play the exercise out of this is in the context of Jesus talking about his own death all throughout, starting with Mark, there is the clear evidence that Jesus dies by God's explicit desire and Jesus' consent to it. So even though somebody mm -hmm. else kills him, this is somehow a divinely intended and unusual form of death, as well as, of course, Jesus 
comes to life again, and then he exits the earth in a mysterious fashion. So it's not, he doesn't get a fiery chariot, which is kind of a bummer. You know, the ascension yeah. is just kind of like lift off, clouds gone. But uh, but there is clearly some sort of um, of of o- overlapping field of mysterious deaths, mysterious lives, mysterious exits from the earth. Well, and one way to think about it is, I mean, of course, you just made reference to being lifted off the earth, but of course, only Luke and Luke Acts narrates the ascension. True. True. And, and of course, Mark doesn't give us much narrative of, of resurrection appearances even. And I often am inclined to think that Mark is kind of giving us that he's taking, he's assuming all that stuff as basic to Christian preaching and is inclined to kind of, I mean, one of the things I think the transfiguration story is doing here, and this might be getting into, I don't know, our third episode, so I won't camp out there, but is functioning as kind of giving us some resurrection, ascension kind of imagery beforehand, you know, so that he can make sure that the the death of Jesus functions as the climax of his story. Cause that's clearly Mark's mm-hmm. agenda is to like, if you take, if you think of all the sermons in Acts, which I don't think exactly reflect the early Christian preaching, but they reflect some, to some extent, they all are built on the more natural narrative. Jesus was a great guy. He went around doing good. And then you <laughs> bad people killed him, but God raised them from the dead, right? It all hinges right, right. on resurrection as overturning crucifixion. Right. And one of the central insights that I think is actually motivating Mark's gospel is a kind of Pauline as well in a different way, Johannine kind of insight uh, or, or, or not insight, but emphasis on the centrality of Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. So I think Mark's wanting to have the climax be the crucifixion, the centurion, son of God, all that. So then, but he do, he doesn't, it does not because he doesn't want to have the, an ascended, exalted Lord. He just wants <laughs> right. us to be focused on that. Right, right, so right. So he has an incentive to be like, well, what are some stories that have, you know, what are some traditions that I can, you know, present that kind of give us little hints of that earlier on so that I can just leave the story because I, I go with the shorter ending of Mark. Maybe you don't, but. No, no, I do. Um, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So that I can leave it hanging because that's like his plan. I mean, that just totally fits the whole gospel yeah um i don't know how that resonates with you but oh yeah i think i'm, I'm actually trying to hold myself back not to talk about the resurrection connection too soon because that'll be yes, in, in our, it, our third it, episode but ascension think, though ascension connection ascension yeah right connection. well but but resurrection too the i think you're on the yeah. right track there but again i mean what your your point is in mark's logic if he's going to talk about the transfiguration, he has to hedge it in so carefully with passion yes. predictions yes. and insistence. Yes. I'm going to die. Okay. So there's yes. the one right beforehand when the disciples correctly identify him. And then there are two soon afterwards. And then if you frame out a little bit farther, there are two blindness stories as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, the disciples at the transfiguration are blithering idiots, which <laughs> is completely overcome and baffled by what they're seeing. And you have that double take. The last healing scene was the the double take one, where the where right, he, right. the guy yeah. doesn't see yet fully. Yeah, like which trees is very, walking. I always have taken that as 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 an intertext resonating with what's happening with Peter, kind of oh, seeing nice. him, claiming him as Messiah, but actually not getting it right away. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Seeing unclearly Ooh, nice. what the implications of this. I hadn't traced that into transfiguration yet, but you'd have it there because you kind of have a double take. You have the initial image is them with Jesus, with Elijah, talking with Elijah, along with Moses. And and then it's 
and then the cloud comes, right? So you kind of have a, it's a two, it's another kind of two take mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, perception or revealing of some kind. Well, I don't and know. And here's the weird thing. Seeing Jesus, beholding with the eyes doesn't do any good. <laughs> they they what? are terrified and they <sighs> miss the point. When the cloud comes and obscures everything, it's it's the word overshadowing, which has a rich resonances too. Yes. And then the voice speaks, concluding with listen to him. That so there, there's like this almost move from sight to hearing. And that what they see actually blinds them in some real sense. And hearing, it's not like they exactly start to hear right, but they're, you, there's more success. But they are being the, addressed. The yes, they, and uh, yes, and in the transfiguration, Mark, yeah. God is talking to everybody except Jesus. Whereas in the baptism, the address of God is directly to Jesus and people eavesdrop. But just, now it's, that's just Mark where it's that just way. Mark and and Luke actually Matthew Correct, is the one yeah. who pulls back and has it be third person. Though he, even Matthew sort of in the baptism emphasizes what Jesus is seeing, so he's still like Jesus yes. is still positioned as the observer in the story. The and remnants then, of Jesus yeah. uh as the audience of that because you can see how that yeah. could become problematic like what did Jesus not know he was the son of God, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Like you could yeah, see yeah. the 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 instinct to to massage that narrative a little bit. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. Well, so we should I, talk I was, about I was Moses grinning because that's just like, I mean, that was just such a, yeah. All right. Well, let's talk know. about Moses briefly too, because so Elijah, yeah. um, you know, so the, the mysterious uh, exits and the John the Baptist thing and, um, and the, the departure into heaven, all that, that kind of stuff. Um, and th- there's a lot more to be said about Elijah, but uh, so he comes first. And then then we have Moses. And I think it's a little bit easier to see the connection with Moses because, in a sense, Moses brings the entire story of Exodus with him, which is mm-hmm. something that Luke will make more explicit. But the the kind of thing then that like the hinge between Elijah and Moses specifically, besides their mysterious deaths, is that they are both mountaintop men. And so they both have a unique relationship to Mount Sinai. Now, interestingly, the Mount of Transfiguration is not identified by name and it's not called. Well, um, Second Peter calls it the Holy Mountain. But in the scriptures of Israel, the Holy Mountain is always and only Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Actually, Mount Sinai slash Horeb um, never, ever is called the Holy Mountain. It's called the Mountain of God but not yeah. the Holy Mountain. That's yeah, interesting. Right, right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's it's far away. Like there's not yeah. easy access to Mount Sinai. Well, Elijah or goes anymore. down there. Elijah right. goes down there on his trip. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, Moses and Elijah are the only ones who ever make it to the top of Mount Sinai. And it, it's called Horeb when it's telling the Elijah story. Um, mm-hmm. It's possible that once Joshua came with Moses to the top, it's it's that's not clear. It's ambiguous it. how at what point he. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like the elders and Joshua get like halfway up and it says that they like they kind of hang out with God and they're not killed. It's very funny. Exodus seems to be clearly astounded that they got so close and were yeah. not killed. <laughs> but they're but to go all the way to the top of Sinai, like that is specifically reserved for Moses. And of course, Moses is transfigured. When he encounters God in that way, he comes yes. down and his face glows. Now, I he think he was Mark, up there for 40 days, 40 days. <laughs> and it takes Elijah 40 days to get to yes. Mount Horeb. 
And yes. um, and then also on on top of the I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place. So I love it. <laughs> but anyway, Moses specifically is transfigured and he has to start wearing the veil because he glows. Now, interestingly, Mark puts a little bit more space there. He Mark specifically says only Jesus garments are dazzling, does not say anything about his body. Matthew goes full hog, like his whole entire face was glowing, dazzling white. And then Luke is, um, it seems to be trying to have it both ways. He says says his appearance was different and his clothes were dazzling white. So Luke doesn't really want to commit to the change. So I think Mark is trying to thread the needle of like Moses, but not identical to Moses with his his depiction of it. But anyway, Moses, mountaintop, transfigured. And then Elijah also goes up to the top of Mount Horeb. And so interestingly, in a related but almost opposite way, Moses and Elijah are both asking to see see God face to face. And Moses gets like the backside, not the front side, not the full on glory. And then Elijah encounters God glorious and terrifying, except it turns out not to be God. And mm-hmm. the way you actually identify God correctly for Elijah is the voice, the still small voice. Yeah. So you bring those two together in the transfiguration story and you have two mountaintop men who desired to see the glory of the Lord and didn't. And in a sense, what happens, I think, what Mark is showing us in Jesus, Moses and Elijah are finally seeing what they always long to see. And there is oh. that um, that I think it's in Matthew, not in Mark. But Jesus says many figures of old long to see what you want, what you have seen and they did not. Yeah, it's a Luke so, 11. Yeah, there, yes. there you go. And um, and, you know, like they're they're seeing Jesus face. So actually, this is the first time you can mm. look full on the face of God. And of course, for Mark, who loves irony so much, all along, they've been looking at the face of God and had no idea. <laughs> and and even then, the face itself is not transfigured. And then seeing the glory of God doesn't help anybody figure it out. Well, probably Moses and Elijah got it. But, you know, Peter, James and John don't. So very cool stuff. And so much better it. than a yeah. supersessionistic reading. Oh, my gosh. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And, and that crucifixion framing around both sides of it highlights that the face of this poor man from Galilee on his way to Jerusalem, which, which Luke in more uh, dazzling language makes the same point. Cause you had said earlier, you had said in passing that Luke is more explicit about the connection to Passover. Mm-hmm. I assume you're talking about the, the word Exodus appearing in his narrative of what they're talking because it's the, he's the only one who tells us what they're talking about yes and i gotta admit yes. you would, i mean if you read mark the first, one of the first things that comes to mind is what were they talking about right <laughs> know, it's like, right? well i'll tell you they were talking who appeared in glory now interestingly it's it's plural there you know hoy authentes this is luke uh, chapter 9 verse 31 so and doxe so they're all appearing in glory not just jesus mm. they're all appearing in glory all three and they were speaking, it's an imperfect, so it's continuous. They were having a conversation regarding the exodus of him, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Yeah, so, that you know, fulfill all these Lucan themes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why did I say accomplish? Fulfill. That he was about to fulfill. Yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, this is all. And then he, he adds that they were heavy with sleep. I know he's a little, waking. he goes a little nicer on the, yeah, the disciples. They than saw Mark. his glory. 
and the two men who stood with him. I mean, they did him. just hike up a mountain. I mean, there's reason yeah, to be true. sleepy. That's true. Yeah. But probably it's also making a, a link forward to the Garden of Gethsemane when they're going to fall yeah, asleep. I, I took it as that hour. connection. Yeah. Also, a little uh, Luke, of course, is in my reading of Luke is even though Luke gets painted sometimes as a supersessionist uh, voice in the New Testament, I think he's quite the opposite. He's trying, no, to, he's trying to just the opposite. Work, he's trying to work very hard. It's because he has some harsh language, but that's that's internal. That's that's Jews blaming other Jews for things. I mean, that's that's just what Jews do is criticize each other. It's not it's not it's not a but uh, actually, I think he's actually I mean, per, perhaps this supersessionistic reading was already a danger that he's trying to avoid. This would be not the first time that Luke goes out of his way to do subtle uh, continuity maneuvers in his narrative. Verse 33, he says, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus. So it, it avoids that feeling that like the cloud comes and that makes Elijah and Moses disappear and all you got right. is Jesus, Deletes right? Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas it's like, no, they were already on their way away. Yeah, they have a certain agency. Yeah. Yes. It, it, yes. Almost. Okay. This is really ridiculous. But like in the end of the last Harry Potter book where he uses a little resurrection stone and his mom and dad come not, you know, forever, but to see him through, like to walk him yeah. to his death. I, I mean, I that's... can't believe J.K. Rowling was not somehow we, you know, we know that she we don't have to get into J.K. Rowling, but she clearly is deeply informed by the Christian faith. I mean, in a sense, that's what Moses and Elijah are doing. Yeah, They're like, here, good. like we've been through some tough times. You know, you're a good son of Israel. Let us help you get ready for this exodus you're about to fulfill. I, I mean, I think Luke, yeah, you're right, really does even more stress the kind of. um uh, uh, it, There's no like real hierarchy question here. It's more of a collegiality feeling yes. that I get off of it. And I, I think the same thing you can, um, this may be taking us a little far afield, but Matthew, I was always told was like Jesus as the new Moses, but like Jesus is the new, every Israelite. like he's mm. the recapitulation of the entire history of Israel. There's so many references to so many old Testament figures across all of Matthew. So yes, he is the new Moses, but he's the new everything else too. So I, I, again, it's not a replacement story. It's a fulfillment story. And, you know, Luke uses that specifically wonderful word, you know, the play fulfillment word. So it's the, again, like that, you can tell I'm very obsessed with the problem of supersessionistic yes. readings that we that most I think most preachers don't even know that they're doing when they do them because it's just so it's so deep in our DNA as the church that we really have to <laughs> you know, bring yet, bright light to and yet we as pastors ourselves. and preachers are constantly irritated with the super the implications of supersessionism among our people namely yeah. a kind of disrespect like for law and a kind of individualism God yeah. so mean. Well, I mean, but I mean, preachers were always like complaining about the things that our people say, not realizing that our exposition of the New Testament is, is, if not causing, at least uh, encouraging this kind of mindset, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so but I think sometimes the hearers are more coherent. Like they're just, oh, yeah. I'm pick, picking up what you're saying, which is God was mad at me and now he likes me because of the New Testament, <laughs> right? Like, right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is a great bridge to what we'll talk about next time. Yes, because I don't think there's any way to understand Peter's mistake without a very deep appreciation for the whole Israelite background and source material for this story. Great. So that's where we'll pick up in our next episode next week. Uh, we'll come back to Transfiguration, but focused uh, more on 
what Peter says and what's going on there. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be exciting. Did you want to say anything about the your your book that you're working on and the Kickstarter campaign before sure, we sure. wrap? Sure, sure. So, so tomorrow, as of when this episode drops, well, the Kickstarter will launch. It runs for about two and a half weeks, which is kind of a standard time for a Kickstarter. And uh, it has several tiers. You can start at the lowest with getting the ebook, which you will have in time if you're preaching on Transfiguration Sunday, which in 2024 is February 11th. So you'll have it at least a week in advance to take a look over, in addition to, of course, these episodes to help you prepare. Um, but there's also going to be audiobook, hardcover edition, signed hardcover. There are some perks that you get if you back it early or late. And um, yeah, lots of good stuff. But basically, it's... it's um, well, maybe ne- I'll save for next time. We'll leave it as a cliffhanger. The seven lenses or seven chapters of the book. Uh-huh. What are the yeah, seven yeah, ways yeah, of yeah. looking at oh, the yeah. transfiguration? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, thanks so much, Sarah. This, is, this has been a blast. I'm looking forward to... More still to come. Uh, thanks to the uh, Called Collective team for their production work, especially Nathan York. Appreciate you so much. Thanks to Todd, Eric, and uh, Tom for helping start this show all those years ago. And uh, thanks to you listeners uh, for listening and supporting and getting the word out about the show. Uh, yeah, with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.